Good morning, everyone. This is Pastor Troy Bond with the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies coming to you live right here from our studios in Daytona Beach, Florida. If you're joining us for the very first time, this is the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies, which is a ministry of Raven Ministries International. Raven Ministries International can be found on the Internet at www.biggrace.com, www.biggrace.com. You can find out more information about the ministry of Raven Ministries International. Raven is actually an acronym for Restoring a Vision and Evangelizing Nations. Not only do we do ministry right here that you see uh, originate from Daytona Beach, Florida, but we have teams literally all across the United States, in Canada, as well as in Mexico, and greatly expanding to the uttermost parts of the world as well. So thank you guys so much for being with us here today. If you have questions uh, concerning the teaching here at uh, the Raven Institute, uh, you can actually send your questions to Raven, R-A-V-E-N, at BigGrace.com, and I'd love to answer your questions. If you have questions, we're, we're studying the book of Revelation, so if you have questions regarding that, we'll be glad to answer those things uh, uh, as we go through our study, if you have other biblical questions you'd just like some input on or some questions or some, you know, what about this, we'd be glad to answer those questions as well in private email or any way you'd like to take care of that. But really encourage you to send those questions in. We'd love to dialogue with you and know what's going on in your neck of the woods and what you're doing in the kingdom. We don't believe that by any means that we're the only ones doing it or the only ones doing it right or anything like this. We just want to be faithful in doing what God's called us to do and being a part of your life. And we can do that by praying for you and you pray for us and lending a hand when those times are necessary. We just like to get, uh, we just like to uh, network with the body of Christ and to be a part of what God is doing in this late hour for His kingdom. So once again, good to have you here uh, with us. We're here Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we do a one-hour study. And we're doing a uh, expository teaching right now on the book of the Revelation or the unveiling of Jesus. And so if you want these classes, you've not been with us before, today I think we've got class 19. Our uh, classes, what we do is we go in later and we, uh, what's the question? You thought it was a different number? Okay. We actually go in and we'll download those classes onto our website at biggrace.com and you can download those for absol- uh, absolutely for free. At, uh, by going to uh, the website and clicking on Raven Institute in MP3 format. You can have those, and we'd be glad to put those in your hand. Perhaps another. If you don't have a way to copy those, uh, send me an email, raven at biggrace.com. Say, hey, I'd like to have those on disc. And uh, as we complete uh, groups of classes, we'll be glad to put those on an audio DVD and send those to you for free of charge as well. If you have prayer requests, send those to pray at biggrace.com, pray at biggrace.com. Love to pray for you and to stand in agreement and believe that God uh, can do some tremendous things for you in your life as well. So once again, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Pastor Troy uh, and would like to know you and I'm glad that you're here from all over uh, this nation and abroad as well. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask for his blessing on the service today, on this teaching, as, as well for those that are praying. A uh, special prayer request if you guys are with us live. Uh, Sue Scott, who works for the ministry, is actually going to the doctor today. We had some, some tests and things done and possibly a surgery. So let's pray for her, and she's going to call me here in just a little bit. For you guys, once again, they're live with us, and we're just going to get a report. We're just going to believe God for her miracle and for those that uh, need a touch from the Lord as well. So, Father, we just come to you right now. In the precious name of your son, Jesus, Lord God, we thank you for what you're doing, Lord God, in this, this hour. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you never change. That the, the same God that, that created the heavens and the earth, Lord God, is the same God that's able to, to touch and to heal, Lord God, to empower. So, Father, as we come to this day, Lord God, we come as a very uh, grateful people. Father, we're grateful for what you've done. We're grateful for your love and for your mercy. That, Lord God, we were totally undeserving 
of anything. You found us, Lord God. You sought us out in Jesus' name. And Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you not only just sought us out, Lord God, but you sent your Son, and he died upon a cross, Lord God, for the redemption of man's sin, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And we thank you today, Lord God, that we, can, we are the benefactors, Lord God. We're the beneficiaries, Lord God, of everything that Jesus Christ has done for us, Lord God, and we receive it by faith. So we ask you, Lord God, to come to this place and teach us and guide us and lead us, Lord God, and change and transform us. Father, as we come to you with a heart of humility and ask you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we just pray, Lord God, for uh, those that have been sick in body. Specifically, Lord God, we want to lift up Sue Scott to you today, Lord God. We know what the doctors have said. But, Lord God, we know what your word has said. And, Father, I'm just a lot more confident in Jesus than I am, Lord God, to, to any man or any uh, medical situation. So, Father, we're asking you to touch her, Lord God, and we just stand in agreement with prayers, Lord God, that were prayed last night and have been ongoing for her, Lord God. Ask you to touch her, Lord God, and just bring forth a bona fide, manifest, creative miracle for her. And, Father, we pray for others that have been uh, struggling, Lord God, in areas of life. Maybe it's been in sickness. Maybe it's been in addictions relationships, Lord God, struggles, whatever it is, Lord God, we're just asking for your hand of mercy, Lord God, to, to fall mightily upon them. We're asking you to touch them, Lord God, to restore them, Lord God, to bring victory, Lord God, and just to, to bring your presence, Lord God, in, in a way that's never been experienced before. And Father, touch them, Lord God, empower them, Lord God, uh, strengthen them. And Father, as we come and we study the Word, we, we, we're dependent upon your Word, Lord God. We've got to have your Word, Lord God. I, I know myself, Lord God, I, yeah, without your Word as the driving force, Lord God, and the foundation of my life, Lord God, that I can do nothing. And so, Father, I ask you today, Father, to bring a revelation to myself and to those, Lord God, that, that are studying with us today, Lord God, and maybe studying later, Lord God, as they listen to this. Father, we've got to have, Lord God, a deeper understanding of your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you, we welcome you, and we just ask you, we implore that you would just teach us and guide us and lead us into all truth, that we might know, Lord God, those deep things, those deep mysteries of God, that we might be able to stand, Lord God, in this evil day. Father, we thank you for all that you do, who that you, who you are, Lord God, in Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. Once again, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, Deb, you're here in the studio on my desk. Off the wing, there's a paper on there that I printed. It's like a news article. You bring it to me. I forgot to bring it to the to the broadcast booth here today. It's right there in front of my computer screen. Uh, you know, folks, we've been looking at the era in church history that's called the, that Laodicean age, or the period of uh, the church at Laodicea that we we look at in Revelation chapter three, uh, verse fourteen. And we've spent. This is going to be our, our probably our final day on the class uh, on the. The church at uh, uh, Laodicea, and we'll dive in tomorrow into chapter four of the Revelation, which is some exciting things. Thank you, Dip. And uh, you know, we we previously stated that this is the the church of relativism, or the church wherein everyone basically does what's right in their own eyes. And it's 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 what it is. It's that period of time that that covers between probably 1900 until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it's done, it's been a uh, day and age that uh, has kind of lowered the standard of righteousness and kind of created a, I don't say really kind of created, but it really has. What it's done is created this this lukewarm body of believers who at the uh, end of the age, folks, it says they'll be spewed from the mouth of Christ Jesus. And so we've been studying that, looking at it, and it's relative to us because, folks, sad to say we're living in that day and age. We are, but God in his mercy, you know, Romans, we studied it, it says that that there is a... uh, a remnant, according to the election of grace that he's held uh, out. And, and there are. There's people that, that are remnant. There's people that I meet all the time that just love Jesus. You know, they're not the ones getting the headlines. They're not the ones on the billboards or on the television screens. But they're people that are crying out for God. They're just sincere believers. And it, it, indiscriminate of their, their denomination. 
You know, some of them may call themselves Pentecostal, some might call themselves Baptist or whatever else, but folks, at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with those man-made titles. It has something to do with, with, with a God-made revelation of His Son Jesus and faith upon Him and adherence to the Word of God. And that's where our fellowship is. It, it's not in our allegiance to a, a group, a ministry, an individual, but it's if we're going to have fellowship, we're going to have it around the Word of God. You know, Paul the Apostle, you know, basically in, in Philippians chapter 3, he gave his credentials. But, but he goes on to say, listen, I, I count all that stuff as dumb. That stuff's rubbish. Where I came from, what group I belong to, whether or not I was a Pharisee of Pharisees or a Benjamite or whatever it is. He said, all that stuff's rubbish. And he said, the thing that I've learned to do, he said, I forget those things that are behind and I press towards that, that mark for the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And folks, listen, uh, our, the prize is attained through a discovery of God's word, which is going to bring a revelation of his son Jesus to us. And so if we can just cast down all those other things, anything that would exalt itself against the knowledge of Christ, and come back to this word. Paul also said to the church at, at Corinth, he said, you know what, I'm determined not to know anything but Christ and him crucified. If we can come and we can get around the cross and view everything else, whether it's our study of the Revelation, whether it's your study of the, the, the creation or, or marriage or whatever else, folks, everything has got to be filtered and built around the cross because th that is the, 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 the thing that bridges our relationship to him. You can't have a revelation of Jesus without the cross. You, you can't have an understanding of eschatology without a, the cross. You can't have an understanding of a marriage relationship or how to raise children without the cross. That's why he said, if anyone desires to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Because the only thing that, it's, it's really the cross is kind of our homing device. Again, it's our, it's our spiritual GPS to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you've got your cross, you know, you have these, these uh, what do you call them, uh, GPS units like the, the Tom Tom or whatever they are. And, you know, I don't have, have no one. I borrowed one a time or two. And you're driving down the road and it says, take a left turn here, 300 feet. And after a while, you see, it kind of seems irritating and redundant. But you know what? If you just listen to it, it'll get you exactly where you're going if you plug the address in. And, folks, that's the same thing with the Word of God. The Word of God is our spiritual GPS system. It's the thing that we take up that Word and take up our cross. And if we make a wrong turn, what does it do? It begins to re, uh, recalibrate. I did that one day when I was using somebody's thing. He told me to take a left and I took a right. And so it begins to recalibrate. It begins to tell me how. You know where that comes from? That's Romans 8. He causes everything to work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. If we make a misstep, the cross is recalibrated. It's allowed us to come back to that place of repentance in him. So, folks, we've got to always keep everything that we do really tightly held to the cross of Calvary. And what's happened with the, the modern church of relativism, they've abandoned the cross. And the cross has become a, a historical symbol. It's become a trinket. It's become something that... Uh, that is despised. You know, I heard a, a very popular teacher a number of years ago. He made the, uh, popular with some people, not necessarily myself, but he made the point that, uh, you know, he, he don't want to talk about the cross anymore. He said, because the cross is the, the greatest sign of failure that the world has ever known. Now think about that for just a minute. If the cross is so despised, folks, that's called being an enemy of the cross. And so we've looked at this and we've seen this whole age of relativism, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes and uh, everybody making their own standards. First Kings 17 says that, you know, it was a time when there was no king in the land. And so everyone done what was right in their own eyes. Folks, we've got to have a king seated upon the throne of our heart. and His name has got to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to read those verses. We're in the, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And I want to read that, that, that those verses in their totality. Then we're going to uh, begin to look deeper into it and finish our, our teaching on this uh, 
final age in church history leading up to the rapture of the church and some of the other events that are going to be happening uh, throughout these uh, 22 chapters of Scripture. And it says, And to the angel of the church at Laodicea arrived, these things says that, Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you were neither hot or cold. I would that you were cold or hot. So when, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. But because you say I'm rich, increased with goods, and in need of nothing, do you not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and with white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye soft, that you may see. Excuse me. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcomes will I, I grant to set with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and I am set down with my Father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Folks, you know, you think about that word lukewarm. You know, you see it uh, up here in verse 16. It's really become synonymous with the church at Laodicea. You talk about being lukewarm. Immediately you're drawn right here to the 13th, uh, excuse me, third chapter, 16th verse of, of Revelation. Lukewarm is, is synonymous with it. And, and what it's come to mean, and really by extension, is anything that's riding the fence, anything that's walking in compromise, uh, use the term wishy-washy, uh, flip-flop. And so it's, it's always that, trying to serve two masters, whatever kind of phraseology or nomenclature you want to use. But when you talk about lukewarm, it's just, it's, it's unsettled, it's uncommitted, it's just kind of riding the pine, it's bipartisan. I mean, you can use any of these terminology. And, and so this age that we live in, and unfortunately the church age that we live in, is one that really is characterized not by a strict adherence to biblical principles or a uh, or, or staying close to the cross, but it's it's something that's all over the place. You have the the rise in this last uh, century that just passed of uh, Unitarian Universalist, and Unitarian Universalist is basically says that. Uh, you know, basically all roads lead to Rome, uh, that there's a lot of different names and there's a lot of different things. Matter of fact, you'll see a bumper sticker every once in a while. I saw a guy with a tattoo on his arm. It had said the word coexist, but it was written with these religious symbols, everything from Islam to Christianity to, to the yin and yang symbols. And, and so it's almost like this coexisting, lukewarm, do what's right in your own eyes. Everybody's somewhat right, and it's going to lead that place. Even our, our president-elect, you know, basically he's a universal universalist. And uh, it's, so it's so prevalent right now. And uh, what, we, what we miss at times is really that, that lukewarm church of relativism is, is not the exception any longer, but it's really just become the accepted standard of the age. It's, it's, so it's not outside the realm of, of, uh, of normalcy, but it is the normal way of looking at anything. Think about the number of denominations, splinter groups, and all these other things that people ask you things, well, what are you? Well, what do you mean what I am? I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, I mean, uh, what, what church do you go to? Well, I go to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, I mean, where do you have church? Well, right here, anytime, place. And they want to try to nail you down on something that brings forth this lukewarmness, uh, kind of divisive type type of thing. Folks, it's got to come to a point where we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, indiscriminate of titles and all these other things. And so what this lukewarm hodgepodge has done, it's brought about all this plethora of uh, denominations and ideologies. And so people don't ask you if you're a follower of Christ anymore. You know, they want to know if you're a, a Calvinist or an Arminian. They want to know if you're, you know, uh, 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 if you adhere to the Presbyterian faith or Catholic or Protestant or, you know, you, you hear all those things. You know why it is? Because people are more beholden to those things than they are to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And they understand those things because all of those things do is, 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 is require kind of an adherence and an allegiance to, to something that man can create his own standard on. But when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, folks, what it demands is to deny myself. It demands a death to self to take up my cross and to follow him. And so I really, uh, as we're looking at this, always keep that in mind. You know, even you think about groups that were established in really kind of that holiness-based uh, open door to missions era of the church at Philadelphia. You know, things, uh, we called it, the, talked about the Great Awakening. Uh, like the Methodist and Baptist. You know, those churches were founded and built in a era that was not lukewarm. They were they were definite, had standard bearers and people like the, the Wesleys and the Finneys and the, the Whitfields. And so they built like that. And even out of the Second Great Awakening, when you had some of the quote-unquote spirit-filled churches, the uh, the uh, Foursquare Gospel, the Assemblies of God, the, the, the Church of God in Christ, those churches, folks, were founded really upon solid biblical teachings on holiness, sanctification, and righteousness. Look at some of the histories of those churches. You'll get excited and want to run around the room. I mean, really, they're, they're built upon some tremendous principles that, 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 that are drawn from the Scripture. But what's happened is even those groups that were founded upon holiness and, and solid biblical faith have been drawn away by the, by the allure of the Laodiceans. And, and we're going to look at that really close this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says this. It says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. This is an end times prophetic word, folks. It really ties into this. And I want to show you something this morning as I look at this, how this Laodicean church can take such prevalence. You know, we're sitting here today, and, and obviously we're, we're, we're looking at this from a perspective of our eyes being open, or we wouldn't be teaching it or calling these things what they are. But I want to show you how subtle some of these things are and how easy it is for people to fall victim. Even us at different times in our lives, you know, we, we've been affected and influenced by this Laodicean age. And so we've always got to be careful. But he says, I want you to know, this is Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Thessalonica. He said, I want you to know something. He says, the, the day or the day of the Lord will not come, he said, except first there's a falling away. And that word falling away, we've talked about it before, it's the word apostasia. We get our word apostasy from. And all it means, though, folks, is a deviation from the truth. A deviation. It doesn't mean an outright abandonment of the truth. It doesn't mean a whole-scale uh, exchange of the truth for, for a complete error. It just means a deviation from the truth. Folks, we, we see, we can look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We know that from the Gospels that the little, the little foxes spoil the vines. It's those little subtle things that, that take us off of course that will lead us into destruction. You take a, a, a mariner, someone that is a, uh, uh, works in the, the sea. If his compass was off just a little bit, what's going to happen? He may think that he's going to the South Pacific, but he may end up someplace else. This, those little tiny deviations in coordinates or latitude and longitude can take you somewhere else. And so that's what happened. You see, at the turn of the century, at the end of that Philadelphian age, these little deviations came in. A little substitute for the gospel here, a little compromise there. And what has done, now fast forward here to when we're looking, uh, speaking this live in 2008, at the end, nearly on the, on the cusp of 2009, you see that, that, that deviation from the truth of a hundred years ago has brought us to a point of things that do not, in most cases, even look like uh, uh, Christianity of the New Testament. And so that deviation from the truth or that, that falling away is going to be uh, the, the precursor to that son of perdition, to that, that, that man of sin being revealed. Pardon? No. Is that the 
to the to the false prophet and to the the antichrist as well because they're going to rise uh, uh, right with one another in a, in a parallel revelation of one another. And so what that's done is that that man of sin and that's that word anomia, and sin is man of sin. Uh, we get the word lawlessness from it, or it means those without the law or those without standards. Now think about that just for a second. The law basically provides a standard. It t- it gives me a standard of what's right. What's wrong? What's acceptable? What's unacceptable? What is uh, what is beneficial? What is punishable? And so, if if the man of sin, he's going to be the man without standards, the man that does not have any defined parameters. Now, think about that just for a second. In other words, it's going to be somebody that comes along that tells you what you want to hear. And so, if somebody else wants to hear something different, you know what he's going to tell them? He's going to tell them what they want to hear. So it's a lawlessness. We think a lawlessness sometimes is somebody out breaking windows and, and uh, robbing stores and looting uh, uh, businesses. Folks, lawlessness is just the absence of a standard. And, and what, where's the absence of standard? The absence of standard comes when we begin to take the gospel of the cross and the gospel of repentance and salvation out of the message of Christ Jesus. And so what's going to happen in these last days is there's going to be this falling away. What's interesting to me, too, and we've talked about Acts 17.11 many times, about you know Paul the Apostle commending the Bereans. He said they were more noble than who? The Thessalonians. Now, what's interesting to me is this, this message in, in 2 Thessalonians, that's the Thessalonians of 2.3, Evidently, you know, they, 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 he spoke that to them and he could tell that it did not, did not register on them. He told them, listen, there's going to be a falling away. The son of perdition is going to be revealed. But the Bereans, they searched the scripture daily to see if it was so. Folks, I think what's happening today is, is there is a warning call that's going out to the body of Christ, uh, to anybody that would listen, to all those that have ears to hear, to hear. There's a warning cry, but just like the Thessalonians, people do not want to take it serious. They say to themselves, you know what? Generation after generation has said he's coming. Where, where is it happening? We, we've heard all these things. Folks, we, we sat here sounding an alarm today that the, the day of the Lord is at hand. He's about to split the eastern skies, and you need to trim your lamps with oil. You need to make ready because the bridegroom comes. And, you know, he says that he would not do anything unless he first revealed it unto his servants, the prophets. And I believe that God right now has raised up and is speaking through uh, men and women of faith young and old, all types of various places and lifestyles. He's raising up a collective voice and a warning cry. And not only that, but he's showing us through the signs of the times. And, you know, this this whole falling away man of sin, I want you to think about that for a moment. There's got to be a deviation from the truth, or there must come a time when truth, when I speak about truth, I'm talking about absolute truth, is moved away from and replaced by relativism before the individual who holds to no form standards can come upon the scene. And so we've got to come to a place where we don't have any standards in order for somebody to rise up in that leadership, false prophet, the, the Antichrist, to, to be able to take position. Otherwise, what is it? We're either on one side or the other. But we've got to come to that place. You, you hear today politicians saying, you know what, I've, I'm going to govern from the center. Now, I've heard that many times. I'm going to govern from the center. Folks, the, the only true center to govern from is the, the, the center of the cross. And so what they mean is I'm going to compromise on both sides in order to get my agenda passed. Folks, there's no government from the center. There's government from the, from the throne of grace and of mercy that he is seated upon, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and to it there shall be no end. And, and think about this. The, the time is going to come, and, and I believe it, it's come to a degree, when really the, the social, spiritual, and governmental environments are such 
that really, if I could put it this way, kind of the intuitive senses of people or the intuitive defenses that, that are in people's lives uh, are, are really conditioned to the point that they're oblivious to any type of common sense, oblivious to any basic types of morality, and, and in order to open up the door for just this global deception. Now, think about this for just a second. Let's go back a hundred years and think about the chances of legalizing homosexual marriage. Now, that breaks with all common sense. That breaks with basic morality. Now what you have is people fighting in the streets and open homosexuality and, 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 and homosexual marriages. Folks, just think about it in, in just the common sense. That does not work. There is no, uh, no ability for procreation within those relationships. It, it, it speaks against nature, even as the book of Romans has told us. But you see all those things coming in. Abortion, slaughtering children uh, while they're yet in their mother's womb. Since the 72 decision, Roe v. Wade, millions of unborn children just in this nation have been slaughtered. Now, go back hundreds of years, and you saw that as the, the most damning and, 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 and telling sign of a, of a uh, culture in a society that had, had digressed into the point of the dark ages. It's just not something acceptable standard. Now it's called the right to choose. It's called pro-choice. No, it's called pro-death. It's called pro-destruction of children. But you see how all this Laodicean uh, ideologies have welcomed all these things in. And folks, it's really kind of across the board. Think about this for just a moment. And, and, and how, does, how did these things come in? Did, did they come in because people attacked it on the moral side? I'm going to show you through what he says to the book of, in the book of Revelation right here to the church at Laodicea, verses 14 through 22 in, in Revelation 3, how typically those things come in and how it was brought into this day and age. Think about this just for a second. In the beginning of the 1900s, the beginning of the Laodicean age, the world was moving away from a producer-based economy to a more consumer-based economy. Think about that for a second. They move from a producer-based economy to a consumer-based economy. And, and what is meant by that? Up to that point, most people either did produce or could produce almost everything that they needed for self-sufficiency. They could grow their own food. They could build their own house. They could hunt for their own meat. They could make their own clothes. They could can their own vegetables. They were consumer-based. They could Anything that they needed, they were self-sufficient. They could get in their Conestoga wagon. They could head to the west. They could see a piece of ground. They could get their saw out. And with a few weeks, they would have a log cabin built. And they would be raising their children out there by the, the bend in the river, fishing for their food, shooting deer, growing their crops. They could take care of themselves. They could, they could do those things. But something began to happen. Uh, this, and it was when the, uh, the Industrial Revolution came about at the turn of the century. Mass production, automation. What they began to do is systematically draw people really to a central place of supply. And so people stopped buying their own, uh, uh, making their own clothes. They, they bought their own clothes. They stopped growing their own food. They bought their food. Barter was abandoned uh, for really almost a complete dependency upon uh, currency or, or some type of paper money or, or, or some other type of, of standard. You couldn't say, well, hey, brother, you know what? I'm a, I'm a carpenter. Let me help you build your house because you're a blacksmith and you can uh, help me build a wagon wheel or whatever it is. So all those things began to change. And so the craftsman, the farmer, all these guys, they lost their, 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 their value and the speculator and the investor became the ones at the top of the food chain. 
Not the guy who had something tangible that he could do, but someone who could go out and control supply and demand. So they controlled supply that they could manipulate demand. And, and so I ask you, you may ask the question, why is it so important in the day of the lay of the sin? Because, folks, that is what opened up the door. The consumer-based mentality opened up the door for the lukewarm church. You're thinking, well, how did that happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm fixing to tell you. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 3. See, we think that it became a digression of, uh, of morality or the influx of homosexuality or whatever it was into the church. No, folks. What I'm going to tell you about right now is what allowed those things into the church. And what brought about the, the venue for compromise. Verse 17 he said, you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? Folks, not only did this industrial revolution bring about the accumulation of wealth to the secular world, but it paved the way for an enormous amount of financial wealth to be brought into the church as well. And so what the church did is they stopped depending upon Jesus to be, supply all their needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. But what happened is when you had the, the, the investors and the speculators, they began to, to infiltrate the culture. And so they began basically to, to provide where, where, where people had to, to, to trust God and believe God for even their essentials. They began to take the place of Jesus in many of those cases. You know what? Let me help you build a church. Let me help you do this. Let me supply this. And so what happened was, is the standard got lowered because you said, listen, what I've got to do is I don't need to promote the person that has the, the best position. I need to promote the person that's got the call of God upon their life and they've got the best heart. And so, man, you know what? I need to give this guy a position on my church board because, you know, he writes a check every month. And I can't really, uh, I've got to temper and tone down my message because if I say something to that guy, he's going to leave. And man, he's not going to write the check with as many zeros. You know, the guy over here that's just a, a blue collar guy that just works and lives from hand to mouth. You know, he's faithful and he doesn't mind uh, getting called out for sin. He's going to live in righteousness. He's uh, racing to the altars every week. But you know what? Man, he's a dime a dozen. That's the mentality that was brought in. And so you, you think about at the turn of the century, the, this whole mega church uh, phenomena was really a rarity in times past. But the influx of wealth and really kind of the adoption of worldly principles brought about the rise of ministries, ministers who were no longer servant motivated, but rather they were modeled after big business. And so they were no longer producer motivated, but the church and ministers became uh, 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 uh they become consumer motivated rather than producer. And so rather than producing and, and giving to other people, the church became this place where you come and you give to them. The church of the first century, folks, look in the book of Acts. They brought the resources and they laid them at the apostles' feet, not to fill up the pockets of the apostle, not to build the apostles a bigger house or to make them uh, 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 the recipients of a greater type of, uh, of finery, but it brought it to the apostles' feet for distribution. Folks, the, the great problem in the church today usually happens right after that third song where they say, okay, it's time to take up our tithe and offering. It really is. Because now that comes to time to a great ingathering that never really goes anywhere else. Look at the, 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 the budgetary analysis of most churches, and you'll find out that upwards of probably 85 to 90% stays right there within the confines of those four walls. That was not the case in the early church. They brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles uh, began to distribute it to people who had need. Did this one have a need? Yeah, well, here it goes. Does this one uh, have any struggles? Does this family need something? And they gave it, and it says, no one 
had lack. But so what's happened with the church of today is the church of today is no longer a place for distribution. It's a place of storage. It's like a storage building. It's, it's a place where things are brought and are housed and warehoused. Here's, here's the issue. Booted some folks off here. Hallelujah. We must be in good shape. So what's happened, folks, is, is with this, the, the church has become a place where people come and they, they bring their, their wealth, they bring their provision, and the pastors keep it to themselves. Here's, here's the issue, I think, is really what has lent itself to that. You know, he's given some apostles, some prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And as soon as they took their, their wealth, they took their tithe, and they laid those things at the feet of the apostles. Folks, when you bring something to the feet of the apostles, the apostolic mentality is distribution. That's why it didn't say that they took and they laid it at the feet of the pastors. Pastors are such gatherers. They're such nurturers. What they want to do is they want to build a bigger barn. They want to build bigger fences to, to, to put the, the, the sheep in. Whereas the apostolic ministry within the church, it wants to distribute to the church at large because it typically sees things in a, in a, in a broader spectrum and a greater light. And so what's happened is, is when you begin to see the, the elimination of that role, even the apostolic role, it, they begin to model things after big business. Today in this nation, think about this. There are tr- churches today that are drawing the audience of really 30,000 plus a, a month. I mean, a, a weekend. You got you got churches here that people uh, churches like the what is it the the church in Houston Texas I believe uh, thirty thousand you've got churches on the West Coast thirty thousand thirty or forty thousand Saddleback Church you got all these churches uh, that that are gathering many churches it's not uncommon for a church to have ten thousand members any longer uh, back I remember twenty years ago uh, the largest church in America was maybe 20, uh, ten thousand members it was a rarity but now you see it so much and so what they're doing is they're building facilities that really are rivaling shopping malls and pastor salaries are right in line with the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And so it's changed everything. The the whole paradigm has shifted from a producer's type of mentality in the church to a consumer. What can we get? How can we gather? How can we be increased with goods as it says right here in, in the Revelation? And so rather than having to pray for a miracle, you just simply pay for a miracle. Now think about that just for a second. And so the message has, has changed really from the biblical premise of self-denial to the modern day premise of self-promotion. And so I'm going to not pray for it. I'm going to pay for it. If I have a need, God, not supply my need, but God, give me more money. God, I want to reach people. And so how am I going to reach people? Well, go preach the gospel. God, no, if I can just get more money, I can do more things. Folks, you know what? You saw Jesus there feeding 5,000, preaching the multitudes. All they had was a sack lunch. Folks, if Jesus can do it with the anointing, I think that we can too. Now listen to this just for a second. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-12. through 12. 1 Timothy 6, 3-12. It says, if anyone teaches false doctrine, okay? He's setting it up and you know he's going he's gonna to tell us, he's telling this young apostle, Timothy. He says, if anybody teaches false doctrine, he's going to share what this false doctrine is. And he says, and does not agree to the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching, he says that person, in verse 4, is conceited and has no understanding at all. It says he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels and worries of, uh, uh, and words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt minds. Now listen to this. Verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. 
Now, folks, think about when that was written. That was written 2,000 years ago to a young pastor in Timothy. Now, folks, if it's relative, man, it is relative right now. It says they've been robbed of the truth and they, they teach and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Folks, there's people that will tell you that you're, uh, you're a role with God, that if you're successful, if you're wealthy, all these things, that must mean that you have the favor of the Lord. Now, Paul warned about that type of mentality then. But then he says in verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, you've heard it. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from this. Do what? Flee. Run from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made uh, your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so he, he's telling us, listen, the time is coming that's going to be indicated by people thinking that godliness is a means to financial gain. And you'll see it. You get people that, uh, that that talk about this. It's revealed in some of these modern day television folks. The the Creflo Dollars, the the that preach the prosperity gospel. The Kenneth Copelands, the John Avanzini's, the the John Murdochs, and uh, the the Mike Murdochs. Excuse me. That are that are on uh, television that are promoting these things. And they'll tell you, listen, God's going to give you this uh, the, the 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 ability to to get wealth and all these. They twist all this scripture. Does God want to provide for you? Absolutely. And, and, you know, those are just people that are in front of the camera. But, you know, there's a greater number uh, in churches all over that are promoting those same type of ideologies that, that have now ex really exported that same type of thinking in developing nations. Folks, does that mean that we preach a poverty gospel? Absolutely not. God wants to supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I know that my father has the cattle on a cattle on a thousand hills. I know he cares about my children eating and my wife being provided for and us having a roof over our head and being able to do the things that, that are necessary for the ministry that take care of the, those, the needs of people. Absolutely. But does God do that so our coffers will be full so we'll have these great treasure houses here on earth? Absolutely not. He said where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And if my heart is in the possession of all these things... What does he warn? He said there's many people who, who want to get rich. They fall into a trap, into temptation. Many uh, foolish, harmful desires. It says they're plunged into ruin and deception. It says they are pierced through with many sorrows. Folks, listen. In the effort to gain all these things, what happens is people end up losing Christ as a result on it. Think about this. Matthew chapter 6, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, 24-34. No one can serve two masters. You can't be lukewarm. You will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now look what he puts in there. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? He said, look at the birds of the air. Do they, not sow, uh, do they sow or reap? Or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And what do you? Uh, why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow; they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the fields, 
which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, or owe you of little faith? Do not worry, saying, What will I eat, or what will I drink, or what will I wear? For the pagans, for the church at Thyatira, run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jump back up there just for a second to verse 25 of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. It says, don't worry about what you eat. Okay, That's obviously your food, your provision, uh, your drink. You know, don't, don't, you're not going to die of thirst. But think about even body. Don't even worry about your body. Now, now here's a day and age that are fighting for universal health care. All these things. He's saying, listen, the same one that can feed you, the same one that can give you to drink, is the same one that can heal you as well. That's what he's talking about. So people are stressing, you know, why I can't pay that, that, that premium or, you know what, my deductible's too high. Uh, folks, you know what? Man, I, went, I had to move from health insurance to health assurance when I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you another example of, of this mentality that's coming to the church. The uh, rich young ruler, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. Look at this. Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what things shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now, that sounds like a good approach. God, just tell me what I need to do to be a follower of you. And he said unto him, he said, Why do you call me good? He said, There's none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter eternal life, what you need to do is keep the commands. You need to keep the standard. And he said, which of them? And he said, well, you shall do no murder. You not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, he said, uh, he said uh, I've done all these things for my youth. He said, what is it that I still lack? And Jesus said unto him, if you will be perfect, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have a treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. But when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And said Jesus to the disciples, Truly I say unto you that a rich man can hardly enter the kingdom of heaven. I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so the point that he was making there is when we have that Laodicean mentality of that I am rich, that I am increased with goods, I have need of nothing. What does it open up the door? It opens up the door for all sorts of evil. Here's a young man, for all intents and purposes, that was a good church-going guy, if we want to use modern terms. Here's somebody that, 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 that was probably pretty faithful, all these things he did. But you saw that type of consumer uh, mentality came upon him. Well, what can I consume to myself? I have all these things. I have great wealth. I've consumed them. Rather than saying, what can I produce in the way of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven? Man, the storehouse, God took his soul that night. I mean, the scripture is full of that same intelligence. I want you to, I want you to read some. Folks, we're right here, if you're listening to this live, in the midst of these, uh, all this buyout type mentality. Now, think about what's going on in this nation. Billions and billions of dollars is going into these buyout of these failed businesses. You know, uh, anytime that I've seen a business that some local guy owned that didn't do good, you know, he failed because maybe he didn't have good business practices. Now what's happening is they're, they're, they're doing all these bailouts, I should say. Not a buyout, but a bailout. Now, I want you to look at, I want you to hear, I just pulled this off. This was an article that was just put out today, December 8th of 2008. And it says, Detroit Church prays for bailout uh, in the auto industry. Now, I want to read this to you. It's out of Detroit. It says, with auto workers in the pews and sport utility vehicles at the altar. Yes, there's a picture here. You can't see it on here because I didn't print the picture. It says, with, work, with auto workers in the pews and sport utility vehicles at the altar, one of Detroit's largest churches on Sunday offered up prayers for Congress to bail out the struggling auto industry. We have never seen as midnight an hour as we face this week. 
The Reverend Charles Ellis told several thousand congregants at a rousing service in the Detroit's Greater Grace Temple, This week, lives are hanging in the abyss of uncertainty as both houses of Congress decide whether to extend a helping hand. Local car dealerships donated three hybrid SUVs to be displayed during the service. One from each of the big three, a Ford Escape, a Chevy Tahoe, and a GM, and a Chrysler Aspen were there just in front of the choir and behind the pulpit. Ellis said he and other Detroit ministers would pray and fast until Congress voted on a bailout for Detroit's embattled automakers, and he urged other congregations to do the same. Ellis concluded the service by leading the choir with Myrna Summers, We're Going to Make It, as hundreds of worshipers who work in the auto industry, both assemblers, executives, car salesmen, gathered six deep around the altar. Now, mind you, what was around the altar? SUVs to have their foreheads anointed with consecrated oil, the New York Times reported. Folks, you talk about sick, blasphemous, perverted things indicative of the Laodicean age. Folks, they're gathering around. It, it reminds me of the book of Exodus when they, they had the golden calf. Now think about what he said. He said, we have never seen a midnight hour as we face this week. Why? Because the failure of the auto industry? Now, were they, were they praying when Roe v. Wade came down? And they were, or are they saying, we're going to fast and pray until they're not slaughtering the unborn? No, because the same people that vote for nonsense like that vote for politicians who agree with those things. Folks, you see the type of thing. And if it happened there, they're bowing at the altar of the auto industry. Isn't that just repulsive? And they're doing it and putting it in the mainstream. This is a Reuters report that was printed on, on Fox News. You see the type of mentality that's come into the modern church. Folks, that's what we're confronted with right now. But he said, I counsel to you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich with white raiment, you may be clothed, and that the shame of your naked does not, does not appear. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you might see. What's interesting about that, we talk about the historical nature of the church at Laodicea. And it was a major um, center for uh, not only banking, but also for the medical industry. One of the things that Laodicea had was they had what they called a magic eye solve. And it's interesting that, that, uh, that, that Laodicean church, when it's, it's not specifically mentioned there historically that they had it uh, within his uh, a dissertation to the church at Laodicea. But he, he uses that. He says, anoint your eyes with an eye solve that you might see. He's saying that there's a spiritual eye solve that he gives. Let those that have eyes to see, see. He said, bind me gold tried in the fire. Folks, listen. He gives a warning that your gold and your silver perish. All these things, your gold and your silver, your, uh, your, 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 what is it, 401Ks, your stock options, all these things at the end of the day, folks, they are controlled by something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is I counsel you not to buy and invest in these things that are going to pass away or to put your stock. Now, is it, now is it you know, a sin to, to say, hey, listen, I've got this retirement. It's not a sin whatsoever. That's not even what I'm implying. What, but when you put all of your trust in that, if you're saying, listen, man, I'm going to fall apart and jump out a window because the stock market crashed. Well, you know, I'm not because I know whom I believed and I know that he's able to keep those things that I've committed unto him, that, that he's my caretaker. He's the one that's going to provide my needs, even if everything else does collapse, because it's going to collapse. I mean, it's a given. He gives the warning not to, not to, uh, to invest in those things that are going to pass away. And he says that you might be rich. Rich in the sense of financial remuneration? Absolutely not. But rich in the sense that God is going to take care of you in the midst of all these other calamities. Why? Because I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's seed 
begging for bread, and with white raiment, which obviously speaks of righteousness. And so we've got to be clothed with the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So, so folks, listen, if you're in a, in, a, in a battle right now and you're in the midst of a financial crisis, you've got to just worship and praise your way out of it. You've got to thank God that God is faithful, that God is not going to allow you uh, to have to bear more than you can handle. God's going to bring that deliverance, but you have got to trust him, that you might be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. Then he says this. He said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Folks, listen. We, we love. Look at, I want you to look at something real quick in verse 19. Love, rebuke, chasten. They're all right there together. What you see anymore is, is this modern day mentality of love minus rebuke and chastening. Folks, you cannot have genuine biblical love without rebuke and without chastening. Chastening and rebuke is what reveals the love of God. He says that he uh, that, that a child or a person without chastening is like a bastard. It's like someone that's fatherless. And what uh, indicates that God loves us is the fact that he is willing to correct us, to rebuke us, to chasten us, to, to bring us back to that place of righteousness. Uh, the, the, the Proverbs tells us that a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. And so if we're left to ourselves, what are we going to do? We're going to bring the name of Jesus to shame among the world. So what's God going to do? He's going to bring chasing. That's why, once again, he told, uh, he told Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Back to the word of God. Come to a place that's got the standard. That's not this relativism. But I want you to bring people back to a place where they're firmly planted upon the word of truth. As many as he loves, he rebukes and he chastens. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Have the moral compunction to think differently. I want to have that metanoeo. I don't want to be conformed to the image of this world. What's the image of this world? It's that consumer mentality. It's this the product of the industrial age of what can I gather to myself. Don't be conformed to the image of this world. What is it? It's that relativism that, that there's no uh, king in the land. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. The ways of a man are always right in his own eyes. He said, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not, not all this multiple choice, not all this, this ecumenical type of uh, mumbo-jumbo, but coming to the good and acceptable and perfect will that God has for us. We know His will is that none should perish, but all should come to, what does He say? Verse 19, repentance. I've got to come to that place where I recognize my sin, I renounce its power, I'm reconciled back unto Him, then God gives me a greater revelation of who He was. Now, verse 20 is so powerful in the scope of what we've been talking about here the last uh, few weeks. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he will hear with me. Verse 20. Now, here we are at the end of the, the church age. Now, I want you to go back for just a second and look at the first chapter. Verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Look what he said here. I'm going to read 12 first. And this is John saying, he said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. And so in verse 18, at the birth of the church age, where, where was he standing? He was in the midst of the churches. He was right there. He was there. He was in, in the middle of them. We talked about the, that Ephesus age, that apostolic age, that, that Jesus was in the middle of them. Now fast forward to this Laodicean age, and where is he at? 
He is on the outside looking in. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Folks, that, that is the, the saddest thing about the, the modern church is that Jesus is really genuinely not in the middle of it. You know, I heard a story one time, whether it's true or not, I, I really don't know. It, probably not true. It's just an analogy, actually, what it was. But it was a guy that went to church, and he was a very poor guy. He was a, a, a street person, and he went. And uh, he, he went into the church just with his street rags, and he came in, and they told him he couldn't stay because he wasn't dressed properly. If he wanted to, to, to go back, if he wanted to come there, he needed to go and leave and dress properly. Then he could come back to the church. So he, he left, and he ended up uh, dying, and uh, he, he stood before the, the throne, and God began to question him. He, uh, some questions. He asked him a question about church or whatever else. And uh, he asked God, he said, well, God, I went to that church, and they wouldn't let me in. And he said, what do you think about that church? And Jesus said, well, I don't know. I've never been to that church. Isn't that the type of mentality? And we think we have to, to, to do something to gain God's favor, and we don't. And he's always on the outside looking in. But, but folks, here's the thing. Do you ever find him on the outside of an area of your life knocking in order to get in? Maybe there's something that, that, that you've closed the door to him, and he's knocking and get in. You know, I, I, I have a house, and in my house... There's not just one door leading into the to the main area. There's a there's a kind of a public place, obviously, where you walk into the house and there's a living room and there's a, a, a kitchen and a, and a place where you greet your guests. But there's other areas in my house that also have doors. There's closet doors. There's bathroom doors. There's bedroom doors. There's the garage door. There's the back door. And you know, when when I open the doors, I don't just open them all at once. And say, hey, why don't you just go through my house, folks? We're like that spiritually too. We, when he's standing at the door, he wants to walk into every room of your house. He, you know, we have that junk drawer, that junk closet. We just throw everything in, and we hope no one sees it. Folks, Jesus is not. He's standing at the door, even in your junk drawer, your junk closet. He's wanting to see everything in our hearts and lives. And he's saying, hear my voice, and if you open the door, I'll come in, and I will sup with you and you with me. And that makes me think of the, the 23rd Psalm, that you know, he's prepared a table before me. In the presence of, of mine enemies. And he's come to that place that he wants me to sit with him and to have that type of, of sweet fellowship with him. But the Spirit of God stands at the door and knocks. He said, if any man hear my voice and opens the door. And we're going to really get into that whole point of that voice when we get into Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Is that's that, that calling out of that time. Then what does he say in verse 21? He says, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down at the right hand of the Father in this throne. Folks, you know right now, it's not a it's not a thing that we're looking at just prophetically. It's something that we're looking at in reality. He says now, because of our relationship with Him, that we are seated with Him in heavenly places. We have that role and that, and that right, and we have that place that we are in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. We are in Christ just as Christ is is in us. But what we're going to see as we have faith in him and we open those doorways is that we're going to see him come in and, and, and seat, sit with us and see the throne room of his, uh, his, the manifestation of his standards and his righteousness and his holiness manifested in our life. And so as we come to the close of this Laodicean age, what do you see? He's still standing. He's still knocking. He's still desiring. He doesn't say, well, you've abandoned me. You've, you've given yourself over to, 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 to the God of mammon and of money and all these things. He's saying, I'm still going to sit there and I'm going to keep on knocking. I'm going I'm to keep on beating on the door. You know, I've had, as, as a pastor, there's people that were in the church that were struggling, that were that fell away from the Lord. And I found myself, you know, going to their house. And I knew they were home because the car was there and I seen the drapes move. And I'd stand there and I'd just keep knocking. 
Now, they can open the door they, or, or not, but they're going to know I was there. They're going to know that I was determined. I'm going to knock and I'm going to knock and I'm going to knock. I'm going to sit in their driveway and I'm going to beat on it. I'm going to be there. I'm going to, I'm going to be persistent. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to be a, a spiritual irritant to them. They're going to know that if any time they can open that door and come and, and, and get uh, restoration. Folks, the same way with, with Christ Jesus in this last day. You know, with all the calamity, with all the perversion, with all the fallen ministers, with all the nonsense like the, the, the SUVs at the altar at the largest church in Detroit and people praying for it, folks, there's still a Jesus that's raising up people out of obscurity, people of no reputation, and sending them to the highways and the hedges to compel people to come that His house might be full. He is telling, you know what, we've got to be zealous after those things that are him. Now look at this. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. I guess my question is today, do you have an ear to hear? Do I have an ear to hear? Do I really want to hear what he is saying at this last day and age? You know, I've had people tell me many times, listen, you know what, I don't really want to hear that. They would rather, and I've had, I've actually verbatim, I've had somebody say to me, I would rather just be naive. Okay? I had a situation recently where I'd ran into somebody and they had told me about them leaving their church and they left the church because of some sin in the leadership. And they, uh, and they, as they were telling me the story, I guess I had a look on my face. They said, what, you already knew about that? I said, yeah. And they said, well, why didn't you tell us? And I said, because you wouldn't have believed me. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, there was other things that you were involved in. I just told you the truth about it. And you got offended at me. You didn't have an ear to hear. You didn't want to hear it. And folks, listen, that's the condition of the Laodicean church. A lot of times we don't want to hear it. Folks, there's things that God speaks to me on a daily basis that I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have to confront it, but I have to. And I can either tell him, go away, gone fishing, don't come to this house anymore. Or I can open him up and I can say, God, please come into my life. Begin to deal with me. Begin to bring conviction and correction into those areas of my life that I've deviated from the truth. Folks, that kind of summarizes that the whole Laodicean church, that, that lukewarm nature that's going to lead up to, to what we're coming to in Revelation 4.1. You know, we talked about those things that were, those things that are, and those things that will come to pass. The first three chapters that we studied are the things that are. Those are those things. What we're about to go into is the things that are going to come to pass. The things that are going to open the door. And really exciting. What we're going to do, we're going to be talking about the issues of the rapture of the church. You know, there's three schools of thought on that. You know, there's the pre-trib, the, the mid-trib, the post-trib. I personally hold to a pre-trib uh, rapture, and I'll get into why I do that. But I'm going to mention the other two uh, things for you. And I may even have somebody in, in here with me who wants to kind of discuss those matters. Because I think you need to see it, not in an argumentative or, or debate sense, because I don't think that really gets anywhere. Because at the end of the day, folks, it, it, it really that don't matter. What matters is the cross. And uh, you know what? If, I, if it proved that I was wrong and had to go through the trip, big deal, you know. I know who keeps me. I don't believe Scripture says that, but if that be the case, hallelujah, praise God. It just gives me uh, you know, seven more years to preach the gospel before the millennial reign of Christ. But we're going to be teaching that and probably bring those things up so you can look at them. Because I don't want you to just say, well, just because this teacher, Pastor Troy, said that, that I've got to believe. Absolutely not. I want you to search the Scriptures to see if those things are so. So we're out of time today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be back tomorrow at 9 o'clock uh, a.m. Eastern Standard Time for another edition of the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies. Got one bit of advice for you today down. Get into God's Word and God's Word. Get into you.